Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's show, we're joined by Sean Lehman, a watchdog reporter for the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle in Rochester, New York. In that role, he covers public safety and his specialty, data-driven stories. His work is sometimes featured in USA Today. He's been at this paper since 2010. Sean previously worked for the New York Sun. I know him for the books he's edited. He's into sports encyclopedias, and we very much travel in the same baseball circles. But today, different conversation. Sean, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Mark. Glad to be with you. All right. So we've touched on investigative reporting with past guests from Investigate West, Mississippi Free Press. We've hit on data journalism with Crosstown LA. Now we look at New York State and a combination of both. But first, I want to talk about your path. And I find it interesting because it seems like you've come into the field when the industry was on the downs. You don't necessarily see too many people with 10 plus years at one stop anymore. So can you take us through your journalism path? Well, it's interesting. I actually didn't set out to be a journalist. I was a psychology major uh, as an undergrad. I wanted to do research, you know, design and conduct experiments and then publish your analysis. But as I got into that, I, I love the statistical work and the, the, the programming, but I realized I was less interested in human behavior and, and brain science than I was in statistics and writing. So I, I came out of college with those computer programming skills and an understanding of statistics. And I went to work in the research labs at Eastman Kodak. In the early 90s, they were doing, that was the, the beginning of digital imaging. I had never really thought about journalism as a career, but I had started doing some freelance baseball writing in college. There was this interesting uh, window of time um, between the mid 80s and maybe the mid 90s, we had the the dawning of what we call then rotisserie baseball, now fantasy baseball. So there was this incredible hunger for, you know, detailed scouting reports and, and data for individual players, but we didn't have the World Wide Web yet. And so there were all of these magazines and books that were being published in the the late 80s and 90s. And that's really where I got my start writing. I I put together what turned out to be a pretty popular baseball website in the mid 90s with the baseball database that I put together. And that led to my job working for Total Sports, which was a, a publishing company based out of New York that did the big, you know, 1,400 page uh, encyclopedias that were pretty common at that time. Total Baseball, which was the official encyclopedia of baseball. But we also did official encyclopedias for the NFL and the National Hockey League. And we did basketball and tennis and the Olympics and stuff like that. Um, Speaking of dying industries, the encyclopedia business was not a, a thriving market to jump into in the late 90s. But that's what I did. And then from there, I got a job working for the New York Sun, first as a kind of a columnist, but then as more of a beat reporter. And I, I fell in love with it. I just fell in love with the newspaper world. And then I came back up here to Rochester in 2010 to work for the paper here, which is um, part of the USA Today network. Gannett has... Uh, I don't know, more than 200 papers across the country. And here in New York State, I think it's 12 uh, local daily papers. So my job here combines, you know, those those data skills that I have and my passion for storytelling. I went back to school in my 40s to get some formal journalism training. But I really found that, you know, I've been I've been guided well by 
kind of that those those two skill sets, the ability to to pull large amounts of data and information together and to to distill it and then to try to make some sense of it through some storytelling. So a lot of a lot of the stories I write here in Rochester or across New York or for the USA Today, a lot of those are stories that are driven by data work, but some of it is just, uh, you know, old fashioned reporting. I think there's a couple of things here. One is, does Gannett have a lot of people with your combination of skills? Because I think within the industry that I'm thinking that 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 at least at the time that you would have started, that that might have been someone. I think it was where I think, you know, there there are folks certainly in the news business who are good at working with databases. We have, you know, USA Today has a data team, but I think it's unusual to have people with those, you know, those technical skills who also have those storytelling skills. And a lot of times what happens in journalism, or at least what I've seen is trying to team up uh, people with those different uh, skill sets, but there are not a lot of us who I think feel equally comfortable living in both of those worlds. All right, so let's give some examples. On your page on the DNC website, there are databases for, among other things, Rochester athletes, which was tied to something you did on Abby Wambach, state pensions, home sales, restaurant yeah. inspections, money owed to New York residents. And that's the yeah. tip of the iceberg. The, the, the website data.democratandchronicle.com has so many. And I look back a couple of years, July 2018, you did a story about one of the oldest ever murder victims. So I got to think that that's a database. How do you come yeah. up with the ideas for these? How are they created? How are they maintained? And how do they help? Yeah, some of those are, are very utilitarian databases. We take We take public records and we put them into an interactive format. So readers you know, can get some value out of those. Home sales are, are a public record, but there's so many of them. It, it, you, it's hard to make sense of them. So we've done some work to try to put that in a format where people can get some useful information out. Same way with restaurant inspections. A lot of those things are the raw data is compiled by state agencies or local agencies, but they don't, they don't put them out there in a format that's easily accessible. So that's you know, that's one of the, the main things that I do. One of the areas that I spend a lot of time is is building and maintaining these, uh, what I call utility databases. You mentioned uh, a database we have about local athletes. The newspaper here has been naming all-star teams for local high school sports. Going back to the 60s, they started doing football and later they added in basketball and soccer. Now I think they do maybe 25 uh, sports a year, but we had the idea to compile all of those names and, and to put them into a database. About 8,000 kids, I think, who've been honored as star athletes. And, you know, like most high school athletes, even the good ones don't necessarily go on to, to big careers, but you mentioned Abby Wambach. She was a local uh, soccer player, actually a star in basketball as well, before she went on to, to big things on the international stage. But a lot of times, you know, folks don't know that NBA players or NHL players or kids in the major leagues, they don't necessarily know that they uh, came from this hometown. So that's, that's something where we got some utility out of our own data that we, we published. So is your, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned another story that I wrote a couple of years ago about one of the oldest 
murder victims. That was a woman named Marsha Morrison here who was 101 and murdered in her apartment. You know, it just the, the question occurred to me when we covered that case as it happened. You know, it's unusual for someone to be murdered at that age. It's unusual for someone to be alive at that age, I guess. It prompted the question, you know, is this the oldest person who's ever been murdered here? It's not something you can Google to get the answer, but I knew that there were various historical sources that could, you know, help me get that information together. And so it, it turned out to be, I thought, a pretty interesting context behind, you know, this this horrible event. On a practical level, is this just a matter of like you sit with the information and you're like, okay, I want this column, this column, this column, this column, and this column with this information, this information, this information, and then you just punch it all. It's usually not like that. A lot of the times, you know, it, it starts with, usually for me, it starts with a question. And I try to think, how can I get the answer to that question? And then go out looking for information. Sometimes it's it does go like that in terms of building a, a spreadsheet. I guess when we're, we're building that list of, of the local athletes who've been standouts. More often though, it's, it's, you're getting data in a form that is not, doesn't lend itself to analysis. So for example, one of the things that we've been looking at, one of the things I've been interested in is is deaths in the state prison system that can come from, most of those are from natural causes, but people can die from, people can die from suicide, they can die from homicide, they can die from a drug overdose. Every time that happens, every time a person in custody dies, they do an investigation and a report is issued. We were trying to get some overview of how often this was happening and what were the various issues. There was no place we could go to ask that question. So we we filed a, an open records request for all of these reports, and we had to go through each one to try to kind of categorize them and to, to, to you know, essentially build that database from scratch since it, it didn't exist anywhere. Sometimes, you know, the, the, sometimes there some really interesting insights can be yielded from from doing that work. Sometimes you do that work and there's there's no good answers there. So it's you don't always know when you set out. Let me let's take it from one other angle. Is everything you mentioned public records for the most part. Have you ever done yeah. anything like a David Farenthold like call out? Yeah, sure. I mean, sometimes it's as simple as, you know, calling up a government agency asking for data and they say, "Oh yeah, we have that." and they send it to you. But most times, you know, it's it's not that easy. You know, one of the things I've written a lot about in the last uh, 5 years or so has been sex abuse cases, people who are now adults who are coming forward and saying they were abused as children. And every time I would write one of those stories, I would get an email or I'd get calls from other people who would say, "Yeah, that, you know, that happened to me too." So one of the things that we've done in our coverage of, of these cases is to put that call out and to say to people, hey, you know, what were your experiences at this summer camp or what were your experiences with this Boy Scout troop? And uh, it's kind of a, a strange form of crowdsourcing. But, you know, that's an example of, unfortunately, of, of stories that get told because we have people like that come forward with their you know, their, their stories. But you know, what, what, what David did was essentially the only way he was going to tell that story, right? He wanted to know about Donald Trump's charitable contributions, and there was no place he could go to. There was no database of that. So he had to figure out how do I build this uh, from scratch? It's a great, it's a great model. And it's a great way to, uh, to get at questions that are very hard to answer. 
Yep. And for those listening, CUNY Newmark actually has a free set of videos from David Fahrenthold explaining his entire process, which I certainly mm-hmm. recommend. Of yeah. your databases, which one's your favorite? Which one's my favorite? That's, a, you know, I will say one of the, the databases that I enjoy, we, we update and I write about from time to time is the unclaimed funds database. The state, if you have a, if for some reason lose track of money somewhere, the state ends up with that. And the reason why I like that is because we update that all the time. And I, almost every time I do it, I hear from friends or family members or <laughs> or even readers who say, hey, I was in there. I have no idea why Verizon owes me $42, but I was happy to have it. And And even though I do that all the time, I've probably written that story six or eight times. Two years ago, I found money that was owed to me. And so that was awesome. That must have been a very pleasant <laughs> surprise. Yeah, yeah, that it was. It was. Re- reporter, not only finding information, finding information for himself. All right, I mentioned Fahrenheit and government watchdogging. You won a First Amendment work award for your and a team's work on yeah. coverage of Governor Andrew Cuomo. I read the piece mm-hmm. last night. It tracked how companies that had business with New York State were large donors to the governor's campaign and taking advantage of some loopholes in laws in the process. And the fundraising was also tied to criminal convictions. As I said, you were part of a team on this. There's text, maps, charts, graphs, ton of stuff. Can you explain what the story was and what went into the reporting of it? Yeah. So, I mean, in a nutshell, Cuomo had raised over $100 million since he first ran for governor. And that's a huge amount of money for gubernatorial races. We wanted to take a look. The campaign finance records are open but all it, all it gives you is a name and how much money somebody gave. And what we wanted to do was to see if we could figure out um, who those major donors were. And, you know, it, it was a lot of work to try to match up uh, names of companies and names of individuals. But as we did that with, with, again, hundreds of thousands of individual records, we began to get an understanding of who all of those campaign donors were. And a lot of it, uh, it turns out, were, were from companies that were doing business with the state. And it created the impression of, you know, of a pay-to-play environment where donors would get these lucrative uh, state contracts. And as you said, part of the the outcome of this was some criminal charges and convictions of people who were not so careful about uh, covering up their, their activities of uh, quid pro quo. So basically investigative and watchdog reporting at its finest. Yeah, yeah. All right. So you cover public safety. There's some rough stuff there. You mentioned sexual abuse by the Catholic Church, murder stories, torture stories. Our audience doesn't have the experience you do. I know for me, I could never do that. How do you cover those and deal with the emotional aspect of it? Well, there's there's no easy answer to that. You know, in the moment when I'm at a, a crime scene or if I'm interviewing an abuse survivor or covering a murder trial, I'm able to focus on the work and, and my job, which is to, to tell a difficult story. And when I'm faced with that task, I feel a pretty strong responsibility, not just to tell the story of this awful thing that's, that's happened to someone, but to try to give some context and, and help people understand how this reaches beyond you know, a small moment in time. You know, I like to say reporters are not stenographers. My job in telling those stories isn't simply to recite the facts or to, to take down the words that people say. It's 
to absorb all of that and to try to make sense of it and to share with readers, you know, the impact of what happened and sometimes the broader implications of that. And you can't do that. I think you can't do it well unless you engage with with real empathy. And that can be exhausting in a lot of ways. And it takes a toll. There've been a number of murder cases as an example that I've covered from, you know, from the day that the the incident happened from being on the scene as police are there through to the trial process and the end of that, which can sometimes be a couple of years and you get to know the family members of the victims and you get to know, you know, the impact that these people had in the community. And I think as, as, you know, reporters, we understand the challenges of doing this kind of work. I think journalists as a group have, have studied the challenges of, of that. And we understand, you know, the risks of burnout. And we have, at least I could say in our organization, we have good support systems. We have peer counseling and the like, but it doesn't, it doesn't ever get any easier to, to cover those kinds of stories. What's the hardest part of the job for you? I think the hardest part for me is is two things. One, sometimes in covering crimes like murder, the question that people want to know is why did this happen? Why did why did this guy kill his wife or why did this 19-year-old murder his father? There's no there's never an answer to that. There's never an answer to the why that makes any rational sense and so the not to be a nihilist but the just the um you know the emptiness the banality of of some of these crimes is 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 difficult but you know as i've been i've been covering a lot of these sex abuse cases within the catholic church it's been a big issue here locally also the boy scouts and the thing that that strikes me when I talk to these people, a lot of times these people who were abused as as young men, it's almost always men, not always, but these people who were abused as as adolescents, the the trauma of what happened to them, they don't really understand that until they get much older, until they get into their their forties, oftentimes, sometimes even older, and they begin to look back at their life and say, you know, I've had failed marriages, I've had problems with substance abuse and alcohol, had other issues, and, you know, need to understand that all of that misfortune in their life has its roots and origins in something that they were a victim to when they were 12 or 14 years old. And for me, what's been really jarring is to see the frequency with with which things like that happened how often these things happened in the past and how damaging they can be, not just to the victim, but to the people around them. And so I guess at the end of the day, when you're covering crime and you're, you're covering unpleasant topics like that, it, it makes you understand the, the toll of suffering that exists. And that's, that's, I think, the toughest part of that. You have a combination of the statistical side of the job with the database reporting and, as you said, the empathetic part of the job uh, with covering the things that that you do. Uh, Can you give us an example of what you do in a given week? Sure. Let's see. This week we have, well, I'll give you two examples. I did a story early this week about, we looked at the pension data. That's something we look at for teachers. The state pays out pensions to retired teachers. And one of the things that was clear as I looked at it was that a lot of teachers uh, took a retirement last year during the pandemic, which is a continuation of a trend. So 
there's a concern about whether or not schools are going to have enough teachers in the fall. That's That was kind of a daily analysis that I did. We've got election primaries co- coming up, which is always an interesting time. We have early voting here and absentee voting and then the primaries. So there's a big data component to that. Real estate market, I wrote a story about the craziness that's going on in the local real estate market here. We have affordable housing for the most part. Home prices have been very low historically, but during the pandemic, there's been this incredible surge of people who've been moving out of New York City or out of of other big cities who want to go someplace that's more affordable and to get away from dense clusters. And that's driven home prices up here through the roof to a point where people are, are making offers significantly over the asking price on the first day a house gets listed and sometimes still not being able to to get the home. So that's those are the kinds of things that, that I've been looking at this week and and fairly typical of either looking at some data and seeing something interesting and exploring that or seeing an interesting trend or sensing something is going on and then going to see if we can find some data to to back that up. Okay, I've got some advice questions to round out the interview that we typically do at the end for uh, right. aspiring students and such that, that listen. This one we always call the Emmy question, named after mm-hmm. the young woman who interned for us on the podcast, Emmy Lederman. She would always ask, are there any gaps that aspiring journalists can look to fill in your industry? Hmm. That's a that's a good one. You know, I think traditionally in our business, in the journalism business, we've we've kind of organized around beats where people have people have knowledge and skills in certain topic areas, whether it be, you know, covering sports or politics or education. I think that's changing. And I think what's really important is more about the skills that you can bring to the table. So I think there's a huge need for folks with a, a blend of reporting skills and 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 tech skills, I think being able to do interactive graphics and things like that is is in huge demand. Versatility, I think, is a big key, especially as as newsrooms have have continually gotten smaller. I think being able to do different kinds of reporting and and there's also a big demand for folks who are bilingual, quite frankly, as as newsrooms try to get more diverse. So if you if you're Spanish speaking in the journalism field, there's a lot of opportunities. There's there's companies looking to hire. Quite unquestionably, what's the number one tip that you give to reporters uh, about making their own databases? Oh, that's a good one. I would say start gathering data and and spend less time worrying about how to organize it at first. If you go in with some preconceived notions about what the fields in your spreadsheet should look like, you may get pretty far down the path before you realize that you were, you had missed out on some key information. I I think the, I think the most important thing to do, I mentioned that research I'm doing now on prison deaths, get as much information as you can, digest as much of it as you can before you start trying to organize it, because that's really where you, sometimes you go in with, with, thinking the story is one thing and it turns out to be something else. So I guess what I would say is just when you're building a database, all you're doing is just collecting and aggregating all of this information and focus on at the outset and don't don't tie yourself down or make assumptions too early. Is there anything about your job that you would say like to a younger person who might have their doubts uh, about the, I guess, 
I don't want to say the excitement level, but maybe maybe that. Is there anything in particular about the excitement level of the job that that you find, or something about the job that you find particularly, not necessarily exciting, but like intellectually stimulating, or anything like that? Well, I think those of us who are in the news business are adrenaline junkies because there's always stuff happening, there's always new information, and there's always the the thrill of the pursuit. So. For me, it's never been, it's never been slow paced. It's never been boring. And, you know, I think the, look, the business has changed so much uh, since I first got into it. When I started writing for the New York Sun, they did not have a website. Now everything's online. Everything is so much faster, especially with social media. Um, For me, you know, it's just, I'm, I'm driven by curiosity and I like to be in the know I like the fact that, you know, if there's something happening in, in my town, I can call up the local police chief or I can call the, the mayor's office and, and find out what's going on. And, you know, I, I come home at the end of the day and my wife is watching stuff on news and she says, hey, did you hear about this? And I said, yeah, I was actually there when that happened. So that's, that's you know, I didn't have that, that bug when I was a young person for the thrill of, of journalism, but I, I certainly have it now. And I think most people who have stuck around in this business, that's what keeps them going. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. So last question, is there someone or an organization that you're not associated with that you would like to salute? That's a good question. You're talking about like a charitable organization? In, in Within journalism. Within journalism. Well, one, you know, there's a, a group that I'm not associated with, but that I have benefited from, which is called the Solutions Journalism Network. And that's an organization that it does a couple of things. There's an educational component where they come out, come to papers or to journalism schools and, and talk about techniques. But really what they do is is serve as a resource for not just identifying problems, but connecting those problems with a solution. So it's easy to say caregivers are overwhelmed during the pandemic, people who've got older parents. But what do we do about that? What are, what are programs that are working? What are what are solutions that maybe they're doing in Milwaukee that would be beneficial to, you know, to do here in Rochester or vice versa? That's a great organization. They've got a lot of stuff online that you can see and the benefits of their work you can see all across the country. Absolutely. So, and solutionsjournalism.org. Yep. As a matter of fact, they were our guests episode three way back when, when we were first all starting. Right. There nice. <laughs> that, that's a no, that's a perfect, a perfect callback. All Sean right. Lehman, thank you for taking the time to join us. Absolutely. Thank you, Mark. The Journalism Salute is dedicated to the memory of Dr. Robert Cole, who ran the journalism program at my alma mater, Trenton State College, the College of New Jersey, for more than 30 years. In a 2006 interview with the college newspaper, Dr. Cole was asked, what's the most important thing a journalist should know? His answer, how to find things and how to find out things and where to look for information. That's an area that Sean Lehman finds important, too. He's making it easier both for journalists and for readers with his data-driven work. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.